At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Did you know? One of Shigeru Miyamoto's earliest influences for Super Mario 64 came from watching his pet hamster wander around his room. This experience likely influenced not only the size of Mario 64's stages, but its free-roaming camera as well. He was also inspired by miniature train sets and dioramas, but Miyamoto's first thoughts about a 3D Mario came years earlier while working on the original Star Fox. His team experimented with a prototype based on the SNES Super FX chip, but the technology technology just wasn't there yet. It ended up taking five more years for Miyamoto's vision to become a reality. Mario 64 was the first Nintendo 64 game to enter development. In fact, work began long before the N64 actually existed. So the developers started by making prototypes on a computer and keyboard. They didn't have a proper controller for the next six months, so they modified some Sega controllers for testing. These controllers were likely XE1AP Sega Genesis controllers, which had an analog stick years before the N64, PlayStation or Sega Saturn were even conceived. About 100 different N64 controllers were developed by Nintendo R&D 3, and each controller was tested with Mario 64 to see if it was up to scratch. According to R&D 3's manager, Genyo Takeda, they became more ambitious with each new controller, even prototyping a motion sensor wristwatch. The watch worked so well that they actually filed for a patent. However, when the wristwatch was playtested by a focus group full of kids, they were confused by how it worked. In the end, R&D3 had to abandon the idea. Did you know Gaming asked Mario 64 programmer Giles Goddard about the prototype controllers and if there was anything memorable from Nintendo's tests. Goddard said, There was one prototype joystick I worked on that stood out. It was made by a UK company, I think, and it had the ability to programmatically constrict movement in two axes. I thought we could use it to give force feedback or to give texture to certain movements, but when I made some test demos with it, it felt more like it was stuck on something instead. Still, it was way ahead of its time as there was no such thing as haptics back then. Ultimately, they settled on the N64 controller we know today, even though Miyamoto was still dissatisfied with it, and actually wanted a second D-pad instead of the C buttons. The game started out as just Mario running around an empty grid, with the next character added being Mips the Rabbit. From there, the team spent months just perfecting Mario's movements and the game's camera, ironing out these fundamentals before they built even a single stage. Assistant director Yoshiaki Koizumi made nearly 250 different Mario animations, about 50 of which which got cut, including a somersault that probably broke Mario's fall after a long drop. A few animations didn't get cut, but ended up virtually useless, like the crouching trip kick, which Koizumi says he made for beating specific enemies that never got programmed into the game. To test out different camera systems, developers ran experiments like creating a mountain and having Mario and Mips race to the summit, then switching the camera and going again. They tested out thousands of different camera systems, having it locked, having it move, having it so the player could controlled it entirely, and so on. There was one programmer whose whole job was just working on the camera system, and one day he finally came up with a camera Miyamoto was happy with. But it wasn't long before a Nintendo lawyer ran upstairs and told them Sega had a patent for switching cameras, which sent shockwaves through the entire office. They investigated what sort of legal consequences they might face by using Sega's patent, but ultimately decided to throw caution to the wind and use it anyway, praying they wouldn't get sued, and they never did. 
Mario's face on the game's title screen was originally made for a prototype of Mario Paint 3D, which ultimately released as Mario Artist Paint Studio on the 64DD. The game's main menu has an interesting origin as well. It's directly based on an SGI graphics demo called Buttonfly. SGI machines were used to make N64 games, and the machine's tools clearly had an influence on how Mario 64 was made. Another influence for Mario 64 was licensed asset packs. Nintendo used sound libraries from the company's sound ideas, which can be heard prominently in early versions of the game. Some early clips used samples of Looney Tunes actor Mel Blanc for Mario's voice. The game's art director was also influenced by these asset packs. Several researchers have combed countless archives and asset packs to find Mario 64's original textures. Many of Mario 64's textures come from the Japanese Material Dictionary Datacraft series, which have hundreds of photos of natural and man-made objects. This use of stock imagery might also be why the background of the shifting sand land features the Great Pyramids of Giza, and why the wet dry world uses a photo of Casares, Spain. Many textures also come from SGI workstations the game was developed on, such as the texture for Metal Mario. When it came time to build a Mushroom Kingdom, stages were designed on a fixed path with a flagpole at the end, just like classic 2D Mario stages. But the team decided it'd be more fun if players could wander around freely, like Miyamoto's hamster exploring his room, so they replaced the flagpoles with a series of stars. This also freed up cartridge space and reduced the level design workload. The designers didn't use blueprints when making levels, instead adding and subtracting from levels until they felt right. The first stage made was Babomb Battlefield, which originally had a river running through it. But when the team playtested it, they realized that the river's current was too strong and could be frustrating, so they drained all the water and left a dry valley in its place. Programmer Hajime Yajima wanted stages to have destructible terrain, which the game would remember. One example he gave was the player destroying a block, and the game remembering the block was gone for the entire playthrough. According to programmer Giles Goddard, half the team was focused on developing, while the other half just focused on playtesting. They even brought in some children, including Miyamoto's own son, to playtest Bobomb Battlefield and see what they thought. As a director, Miyamoto was happy to see the kids were all having fun, but as a parent, he was concerned to see his son trying to run up an unclimbable hill over and over again. After a few dozen attempts, Miyamoto started to wonder about his son's intelligence. A couple months later, co-director Takashi Tezuka told Nintendo Power they'd already made 32 stages and the final game might even have 40, plus bonus areas like the princess's secret slide. However, the stage count ended up being scaled back, and the final game only had 15 stages. The overall difficulty was dialed back too. According to Miyamoto, there was a change late in development which made gaps easier to jump than in 2D Mario's, as the team worried players might have a hard time judging distances in 3D. This provoked a lot of booing from the staff, who felt strongly that the game's difficulty should remain intact. A large portion of Mario 64's development overlapped with the production of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, resulting in lots of ideas originally meant for one game getting switched to the other. Mario 64 had more puzzles than any previous game in the series, with areas like Shifting Sandlands Pyramid feeling more like a Zelda dungeon than the Mushroom Kingdom. That's because many puzzles were actually made for Ocarina of Time, but were moved over to Mario Mario due to its development being behind schedule. Taking assets from Zelda and putting them in Mario 64 was an easy way to speed up development. Even the castle system itself was initially meant for Zelda, but got repurposed for Peach's castle. The Nintendo 64 and its three launch titles were originally scheduled to release at Christmas 1995, but the launch date was delayed twice, so Miyamoto had more time to flesh out Mario 64. When the game finally launched in June 1996, critics praised it for setting a new standard in gaming. It eventually sold 12 million copies, making it the best-selling N64 game ever, and spawned a whole generation of copycats. A long-running trend Miyamoto chalked up to Nintendo's culture. He said, I believe we are not making Japanese games, but are making Kyoto games. The taste of a Kyoto game is different from that of a Tokyo game. We Kyotoites hate to follow the fashion, but rather love to set the fashion. We really did want to change the culture of gaming, and it was in that spirit that we made Mario 64. In Miyamoto's view, this explains Nintendo's devotion to innovation and forging their own path, while Sega and Sony's Tokyo-based competition always left them following the trends. Despite all the delays, Mario 64 actually had the 
quickest development cycle of any game in the series, and the stress took a heavy toll on Nintendo's staff. The entire game was made by just 15 people, and afterwards two of them were so burnt out they quit programming and never worked on another video game ever again. It was the end of an era for Miyamoto as well. Mario 64 was the last time he sat in the director's chair. In the 25 years since, he's only worked as a producer, supervising the work of directors and their teams. When Mario 64 first launched in Japan, it cost 9,800 yen, roughly 100 US dollars. Miyamoto winced at the price tag and went on record saying Mario 64 should have been closer to $60, which ultimately became the price when it launched in America three months later. The American version fixed some bugs and had other small updates, like Mario saying hello on the start screen and rambling in his sleep about spaghetti and ravioli. In the original Japanese version, the princess didn't talk at all. For the American update, they added the voice of Leslie Swan, the senior editor of Nintendo Power magazine, and also had her localize the game's text. Ten months later, Japan got their own update of Mario 64, the Rumble Pack compatible version, Shindo Pakutayo. As the name implies, the biggest update was a new Rumble feature, which stayed exclusive to Japan. The updates from the US version were brought over as well, with more bug fixes. The developers also let players summon 40 copies of Mario's face on the game's title screen, but even after all the updates and extra development months, Miyamoto still wished he had more time. Mario was the first game developed for the N64, so the team hadn't figured out how to take full advantage of the technology. Ultimately, lots of content was cut, including three separate modes incorporating Luigi. One was a split-screen mode where Mario and Luigi started on opposite ends of the castle and ended up meeting in the middle. Another mode was more like a traditional co-op, with the camera pulling back to fit both players on one screen. Earlier versions of the game were even called Ultra 64 Mario Brothers, referencing Luigi's inclusion and the N64's original name, the Ultra 64. Due to programming difficulties, Luigi got cut just months before Mario 64 hit store shelves. The team tried to make up for it by adding a Mario Bros style minigame with Luigi, but this was cut as the N64 was only bundled with one controller, making multiplayer a rarity for most players at launch. Immediately after wrapping up Mario 64, Miyamoto started talking about a sequel. In May 1996, he told reporters, I couldn't put everything into Super Mario 64 that I really wanted, so we've decided to continue working toward a sequel which will take about a year and a half at least. For Super Mario 64, I believe we have utilized only 60% of the whole capacity of the N64 technology. He later dubbed the sequel Mario 128 and told fans a prototype was sitting on his desk that had Luigi as a playable character, but he wasn't satisfied just bringing back cut content from Mario 64 and was exploring four player split screen like in Mario Kart 64. The sequel would change the gameplay, add more enemies and retool the presentation. Miyamoto wanted to shake off Mario's just for kids image by ditching his then iconic peace sign and having him stop smiling and laughing so much for no good reason. He even did an interview in Japanese Playboy Weekly to hype it up, telling Playboy that Mario 128 would offer a fresh new experience. But in the end, the sequel was never finished and footage of it was never made public. All the cut content from Mario 64, along with all Miyamoto's brand new ideas, were either recycled into other games or left on the chopping block. Did you know? Although he's not a playable character, Diddy Kong is actually in Mario Kart 64. He can be seen by looking closely at the bus in Toad's Turnpike, driving the vehicle. This isn't the only secret surrounding Mario Kart 64. In the earliest stages of the game's development, director Hideki Kono bought some RC cars for testing purposes. After researching their mechanics and physics, his team made a Mario Kart prototype based on a computer simulation of the RC cars. But the prototype ended up feeling too realistic, to the point where it wasn't actually fun. They even had some children try it out, but the kids found it totally unplayable. As a result, the realistic physics were dialed back, and very little from the RC prototype ended up in the game's final build. Later in development, a newer prototype of Mario Kart 64 was shown off at Nintendo Space World 1995 in Japan. At this stage of development, the game was called Super Mario Kart R, with the R standing for rendered, as in rendered graphics. 
the prototype featured a number of differences compared to Mario Kart 64, and even had some music that was never used in the final game, which is what you're hearing right now. Super Mario Kart R also included Kamek the Magikooper as one of its eight races. Kamek was the primary antagonist in Yoshi's Island, the hugely popular follow-up to Super Mario World that launched just a few months prior to Space World, so it made perfect sense for Kamek to appear alongside Bowser and Wario as the game's villains. But one kidnapper ended up getting replaced with another. Kamek was replaced in the final game with Donkey Kong, the vengeful gorilla that kidnapped Mario's girlfriend. Super Mario Kart R also made use of the feather from the original Super Mario Kart on Super Nintendo. After getting cut during development, the feather didn't reappear in the series until Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, 20 years later. In addition to multiplayer horizontal split-screen, the prototype also allowed for vertical split-screen. This option was also cut during development, but it's still hidden inside Mario 64's internal data. You can even unlock it and take it for a spin with a GameShark and this cheat code. The development process was long and arduous, and the developers even suffered a hard disk crash at one point, erasing some of their work. But according to character designer Tomoaki Kuroumi, the crash was actually a blessing in disguise. The models on the character select screen were originally static, unable to move or blink, but the crash deleted all those models with no hope of recovery. So the developers had to make brand new models, this time giving them animations, an extra layer of polish that wasn't originally supposed to be in the game. A year after Space World 95, and following an eight-month delay, Mario Kart 64 finally launched in Japan in December 1996. There were quite a few details in the Japanese version that were changed in the game's international release, with one difference right on the title screen. In every other region, Mario is the game's announcer, but in Japan, this role was played by Hawaiian actor and radio host John Hulerton. Mario Grand Prix! John told us that Nintendo hired him to voice the announcer on Wave Race 64. Then, after the recording was finished, they slid a piece of paper in front of him without explanation, asking him to record just a little bit longer. That mysterious piece of paper turned out to be the lines for Mario Kart 64. John's agent was pretty mad that he never got paid for the role, and Nintendo even spelt his name wrong in the game's credits. Five years later, that same recording was recycled worldwide in Mario Kart Super Circuit, even in the English version, without crediting John at all. Congratulations! In fact, he didn't even know his voice was used in Super Circuit until we told him. Luigi had been voiced by at least seven different actors in commercials and television shows throughout the 80s and 90s, but Mario Kart 64 was the first time Luigi ever spoke in a video game. We've talked about Julian Bardakoff before. He's the guy who gave the first 251 Pokémon all their French names. A few years before that, however, Julian was translating Super Mario 64 into French at Nintendo HQ. During a break, he was playing Magic the Gathering with a Mario Kart R Pro programmer. One thing led to another, and Julian was invited to take the prototype for a spin. At this point, Toad didn't have a voice yet, so Julian volunteered for the role free of charge. Longtime Nintendo sound director Koji Kondo managed Julian's recording, but afterwards told Julian he didn't really sound like how he imagined Toad. But he did sound like Luigi. So Julian ended up voicing Luigi instead. Wario had never been voiced in a video game before either, so Kondo brought in Julian's friend Thomas Spindler, one of Nintendo's German translators. According to Thomas, Wario was originally conceptualized as a German character, not an Italian. That's why Nintendo brought in a German to provide his voice, and why Wario even speaks German in the Japanese version of Mario Kart 64. He says, So ein Mist, which translates into English as, Oh crap. When the game was localized for international release, most of the characters' voices were replaced, including the announcer, Luigi, and Wario. Longtime Mario voice actor Charles Martinet took over all three roles, but the original Japanese recordings did end up getting recycled for both the Japanese and international versions of Mario Kart Super Circuit, as well as Mario Party 1 and 2. 
When Charles Martinet re-recorded the voices for Mario Kart 64, Wario was rebranded as an Italian rather than a German. We asked Charles if he knew anything about Wario originally being German, if maybe it was his decision to change the accent, just like he switched Mario's accent from Brooklyn to Italian a couple of years earlier. Charles said he'd never even heard about Wario being German, so it sounds like the switch to Italian was probably the result of an oversight by the localization team. They gave Charles the script without any notes about a German accent, so he naturally assumed he'd apply an Italian accent, just as he'd already done for Mario and Luigi. Wario has remained Italian ever since, but interestingly, in Mario Strikers Charged, Wario was given a traditional German fare as his theme music. However, it's unclear if this was an intentional reference to his German origins or just a strange coincidence. Most of the game's billboards were changed as well, presumably to avoid trademark issues overseas. In the Japanese version, the billboards were all parodies of Formula One sponsors, like a Mario billboard imitating the Marlboro Cigarettes logo. But internationally, the Marlboro reference was cut out. Instead, the signs just say Mario Star. Likewise, parodies of Italian oil company Agip, motor oil brand Mobile One, and gas station chain Union 76 were also changed. A mock billboard for the Goodyear tire company was revised as well, and had been an even more blatant imitation in Super Mario Kart R, where the sign originally said, Good Ear. When Mario Kart 64 was re-released on the China-exclusive iQ player in 2003, the game received brand new box art. The game's name was also changed to just Mario Kart, since the N64 never released in China, and neither did the original Mario Kart game on Super Nintendo. The iQ version had some differences as well. The billboards were all translated into Chinese, and the shot billboard was changed to an ad for iQ. The special cup was also renamed the iQ Cup. Mario Kart 64's racetracks have more hidden shortcuts than any other Mario Kart. As well as the usual shortcuts, all but five of the game's 16 stages have shortcuts Nintendo never intended, what speedrunners call skips. Common examples of this are jumping over the wall in Wario Stadium or one of the flying leaps on Rainbow Road. In our hunt for secrets, we spoke with Beck Apney, the Mario Kart 64 150cc world record holder. According to Apney, the Japanese version contains a skip not possible in the international release. On Luigi Raceway, you can hit yourself with shells to bounce over a wall and skip about 90% of the race. But there are three stages in Mario Kart 64 with tricks that even Apney can't pull off, skips that are virtually impossible for humans. But another speedrunner, Drew Weatherton, spent seven years perfecting a tool-assisted speedrun that could pull them off. Completing all 16 races in just 18 and a half minutes, Apney's the world's fastest racer, but he will never be able to defeat the machines, who have him beat by over seven minutes. Hidden inside Mario Kart 64's internal data, there's a function that allows you to alter the Y values for every stage. In other words, you can make tracks steeper or flatter by just a little bit or by a huge amount, including all the slopes, walls, and ramps. You can even invert tracks so you're essentially racing on them upside down. It's possible the developers created this mechanic just for testing and debugging purposes, but considering the fact it's right next to the flag for mirror mode in the game's memory, the developers may have intended scaling mode as an unlockable extra. Regardless of their intent, the mechanic is still hidden inside the game, and you can try it out for yourself with some GameShark codes we've added to this video's description. There was also a no-item mode scrapped during development. In an attempt to appeal to F-Zero fans, racers were given the option to play without items, allowing for more serious competition where carts clumped together in the final lap, edging each other out for fractions of a second. But focus groups much preferred the game with items, so developers just cut the no-item mode completely. According to Tadashi Sugiyama, who designed most of Mario Kart 64's stages, there were also some racetracks that were cut during development. One was a large multi-story parking garage, where you'd start at the bottom floor and race up to the top, essentially racing in circles but in an upward trajectory. This was Tadashi's idea for a more realistic location, but all the constant turning made some people feel sick, so they cut it. There was also a track that took place in a huge city with a pond and even a castle, where players raced around different kinds of houses and buildings. But Tadashi says the stage took too long to race through, so the city was scrapped too.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Access to digital art tools has become the norm these days, with many artists online making use of drawing tablets, creating pixel art, or simply utilizing a touchscreen device to create pictures within the digital space. Access to these sorts of utilities wasn't always so simple, something which Nintendo acknowledged on the Super Nintendo with the release of Mario Paint alongside a mouse controller. But the company didn't stop there, recognizing that with the advancement of technology, so too could their players' artistic potential. Today, we'll be looking at what could effectively be considered the spiritual successors to Nintendo's Mario Paint, the Mario Artist series. The Mario Artist Suite was created by Nintendo for the 64DD, an add-on peripheral that was exclusive to Japan created for the Nintendo 64. The suite is made up of four titles which can be used in conjunction with one another. These are known as Paint Studio, Talent Studio, The Communication Kit, and Polygon Studio. These releases were created as flagship software for Nintendo's new venture for the Nintendo 64, with the first game, Paint Studio, being released alongside the peripheral in a bundle consisting of the 64DD, Paint Studio, a Nintendo 64 mouse, and a RandNet internet service subscription. Originally titled Creator, then Mario Paint 64, before being renamed Picture Maker, then Mario Artist and Camera, until ultimately it was released on December 11th, 1990 as Paint Studio. Paint Studio released alongside the 64DD as a launch title and was originally intended to be a sequel to Mario Paint, but with the ability to utilize the 3D potential of the Nintendo 64. Unsurprisingly, this title is probably the closest of all of the Mario Artist games to Mario Paint, often described as a sort of Adobe Photoshop of the time designed for children. This first entry in the Mario Artist series was commissioned by Nintendo from UK studio Software Creations, who had worked creating tools for music production on the Nintendo 64 console. Players can make use of a variety of brushes, textures, or stamps to create digital art, including paintings, spraying, sketching, and even animation. Various stamps can be used formed from pre-existing artwork by Nintendo, including the entirety of all the original generation Pokemon, a wide array of Mario-related characters, Banjo-Kazooie, Diddy Kong Racing, and a select few others. There's even a unique four-player mode included in the game, allowing multiple players to collaborate on a picture at the same time. Alongside this, there are three different 3D environments that can be explored – Mars, Underwater, and Dinosaur Land. Here, the player can move through the locations while taking pictures of the creatures which inhabit it, often compared to Pokémon Snap. Not only this, but the player can also edit the textures of some of the creatures. Next came Mario Artist Talent Studio, released February 23, 2000. The software came bundled with the Nintendo 64 Capture Cartridge, an adapter that allowed the user to hook up an analog video source, such as a digital camcorder or tape player, and record movies on the N64. The game is mostly an animation suite, allowing the player to create their own 3D characters from a selection of options choosing a character's proportions, facial features, clothing, hair, and so on. The player can also insert their own images onto 3D models. These models can then be used to create movies, with the characters dressed in various clothes and accessories, animated to sound and music, with special effects added on top. 
The game also supports the Transfer Pack, a controller attachment which allows the user to connect Game Boy titles, specifically allowing the player to connect a Game Boy camera to the system to take photos for use in-game, a feature that was originally planned for Perfect Dark before being removed. After Talent Studio, Nintendo published the Mario Artist Communication Kit on June 29, 2000. The disc gave players the ability to connect to the internet and Randnet's Net Studio, a service that gave users the opportunity to share their creations from the Mario Artist suite with other Randnet users. The service provided a variety of contests, as well as printing services through mail order. The disc for the communication kit also contains content that could be added to other Mario Artist titles. The Randnet service only ran for around 14 months before it was taken offline, effectively rendering the communication kit unusable. The last Mario Artist disc to be released was Polygon Studio on August 29, 2000, with 3D graphics studio Nichimen Graphics heading the technical development. This entry in the suite contains a 3D graphical editor and allows users to design their own 3D models, though with only fairly simplistic control. Originally called Polygon Maker, the game was announced at Nintendo's Space World event in 1996, and then renamed to Polygon Studio for Space World 99. By connecting to Randnet servers, it was possible to order papercraft printouts of user-created 3D models, which would be printed and sent to the user for them to cut out and construct their own paper models. There are also some bonus minigames included in this entry, such as Sound Bomber, providing a selection of different minigames making use of the player-created 3D model within them, as well as Go Go Park, which sees the player wind up their creation in order to have it stop before launching off of a cliff. The game also includes a particularly strange explorable 3D world called the Experimental World. Within this vast environment are an array of toasters, toast included, which guide the player through the world so that they can find new 3D objects to utilize within the model editor. Some parts are known as power blocks, which provide the creation with the ability to move more quickly. Software Creations, the developers of Paint Studio, claimed that the Mario Artist games suffered from butting heads between Nintendo's American and Japanese divisions. Paint Studio originally included audio creation functionality, but it was decided to have this cut from the game and put into an entirely separate piece of software, though this would never be released. The Pickford brothers, who worked with Software Creations, claim on their website, the project was caught up in political infighting between NOA and Nintendo of Japan over who was controlling the project, and eventually the Japanese took control and rejected many of the ideas which had been accepted enthusiastically by the Americans, steering the project in a different direction after John Pickford left Software Creations to form Z2, and throwing away loads of work. The Mario Artist suite was set to be even more extensive than the four titles which saw release. It was intended for audiences to be able to demonstrate creativity in even more different and varied forms, with four more entries in the series being planned, but ultimately going unreleased. These included Game Maker, Graphical Message Maker, Sound Maker, and Video Jockey Maker. Speaking of content being scrapped, these games actually have some relatively unknown or unused data. Within the communication kit, it's possible to view a hidden credit sequence by pressing B on the title screen. Credits will then begin to scroll, and pressing C up will grant control of a cursor. By selecting text on screen, it will change the person or title from katakana or English into hiragana. A hidden video of the late president of Nintendo, Hiroshi Yamauchi, can be found within Talent Studio, where he stumbles over how to talk about what Talent Studio actually is. However, the most interesting secret not seen in-game can be found in Paint Studio, where the English developers clearly left unused text in the game's data, unsavory by Nintendo's standards. Debug text pertaining to the game's initialization includes a fatal error message which reads, Can't create N64DD Manager. Expect things to f*** up. The Mario Artist games may have only been received by a small audience, but some elements of the games did become inspiration for future work by Nintendo. Polygon Studios' Sound Bomber behaved as the predecessor to the WarioWare series, including a number of microgames which would go on to be included in WarioWare, though with new names, graphics, and controls. In fact, the first level of the original WarioWare release, being played through a boombox, is a direct reference to the Sound Bomber mode, 
Not only that, but the Go Go Park minigame served as the predecessor to the Chicken Race minigame from WarioWare as well. Talent Studio, on the other hand, would also serve as the inspiration for a title being developed on the GameCube, which was cancelled, called Stage Debut. Shigeru Miyamoto claims that Stage Debut is actually the direct descendant of Talent Studio, and would have used the Game Boy Advance's GameEye camera add-on, connected to the GameCube via the GBA Link cable, to map the user's face onto 3D characters in-game. The game was demonstrated with Miyamoto and Iwata during a press conference, and while it was never released, the work that went into Stage Debut would be the basis for Nintendo's Mii characters. In 2008, Miyamoto stated, In my mind, it's still alive. There's a portion of the stage debut game which essentially became the Miis and the Mii channel. So if we were to ask the question of, what would we do if we were to make the Miis more realistic and lifelike, then that might turn into something more like stage debut. So, of course, we still have the staff who worked on that and it's something that is done. But in my mind, it's something that's always alive. The avatars created within Talent Studio, called Talents, could also be utilized with another game on the 64DD, SimCity 64, where they would inhabit the player's own created cities. This concept of player-made avatars being used across multiple games, creating an almost seamless continuity across the platform, would eventually be realized on the Wii. Nintendo designer Yoshikazu Yamashita believes that much of the work he had done on Talent Studios' avatars would become the foundation for Nintendo's Miis. Most recently, Nintendo made reference to the Mario Artist series within Super Mario Odyssey on the Switch with Mario being able to purchase and adorn himself with the same outfit seen on the cover of the Mario Artist boxes. Of course, ultimately, these games would never receive English localization, and the most obvious reason for this is due to the series' requirement of using a 64DD add-on for the Nintendo 64. As the 64DD never left Japan, neither did these artistic tools. Sales of Paint Studio helped to demonstrate the 64DD's troubles in Japan, and gives weight to its lack of localization, with this developer, Software Creations, estimating that it sold only 7,500 copies. With that said, Luigi Blood, a preserver of 64DD games, has translated the three games within the suite, Paint, Talent, and Polygon Studios. In the end, much of the work behind this creative suite would be left unseen by the mass market. Perhaps with that lack of expansive release, there were also many potential artists whose works would also remain unseen. Today we'll be taking a look at Nintendo's ever-so-beloved, though perhaps ever-so-overused character, Mario. Nintendo's starlet Mario has made plenty of appearances over the years, though it can't be all too surprising to know that sometimes his presence can be overlooked. This is often because the product in question is either a regional exclusive or the game is simply not geared towards traditional fans of the Mario franchise, or even gamers at all really. We'll start with the earliest game in this episode being released back in 1986, I Am A Teacher, Super Mario Sweater. More of a tool than a game, Super Mario Sweater was released for the Famicom Disk System and let players input their clothing's measurement sizes and then design sweaters. The game was developed by Nintendo but was published by Royal Kogyu, a Japanese appliance company that specialized in the manufacturing of sewing machines. The company realized that they'd make a good profit if they could program a sweater designing application with the final product being sold for 2,900 yen, roughly 25 US dollars. The project was also a way for Royal to make more profit through direct orders, as designs could be sent to the company so that the player could actually wear their own custom-created sweaters. Some years later, in 2001, believe it or not, another game was made for this reason as well. This was Mario Family for the Game Boy Color, developed by Natsume and published by Jaguar. The game was compatible with the Jaguar JN100 or 200 sewing machine a machine that could be directly linked to the Game Boy Color. The game had 32 patents stored in its data. Interestingly, a cancelled spin-off called Kirby Family was also considered, being the same concept but with the Kirby series. Another interesting accolade of Mario Family is that it was the last Mario game to be released for the Game Boy Color. Jumping back though and more towards what can actually be called a video game, over the years Mario has managed to wind up in a varied array of scenarios, with one of the more popular side jobs for the plumber being his racing career. 
However, while many believe Mario's first time behind the wheel was in 1992's Super Mario Kart on the SNES, it was actually much earlier. Famicom Grand Prix F1 Race released in 1987 for the Famicom Disk System, making it exclusive to the Japanese market. The player had the option of racing a Formula 1 car either alone on a track or against other Mario lookalikes. Each car had a certain volume of fuel and health, which would deteriorate when driving off-road or crashing into walls or other cars. Of course, the player can take a pit stop in order to refill their tank and make some repairs, a pit stop that happens to be filled with Mario lookalikes, though this will take up some time in the race. There was a sequel released a year later called Famicom Grand Prix 2 3D Hot Rally. This game, as the title suggests, is possible to play in 3D as long as the player wears 3D glasses. Mario & Luigi's involvement, however, remains only on the box. Another obscure Mario game references this cover, Super Mario Bros. & Friends When I Grow Up. This 1992 US exclusive digital coloring book for the PC included multiple pictures of Mario and the gang in different real-world situations. One of them was the cover of Famicom Grand Prix 2 3D Hot Rally, despite this game never being released in the US. Super Smash Bros. Ultimate actually has this artwork as an unlockable spirit, and Mario Odyssey has a mechanic outfit and hat for Mario in reference to artwork found in the game's manual. Another game which would fly under the radar came just a year later, also on the Famicom Disk System. Keitakita Mario Bros. or Return of Mario Bros. released in 1988 and was an update to the existing Mario Bros. game, as well as being the last Mario title published for the Famicom. There are only a few changes made to the original game. There are some new levels, the ability to change direction in midair, retained high scores, and the ability to register the names, age, and gender of players 1 and 2. A new mode was also introduced called Nagatanian World, which would give the player the chance to continue the game after losing all of their lives, but would ask them to win a spin on a slot machine minigame to do so. This can only be performed once per game and offers four, two, or just one additional life after a game over. Also in this mode, the player can get promotional codes after attaining scores over a certain value. After 100,000 points, a code is given which can be mailed to Nintendo for a chance to win a set of Mario playing cards. After 200,000 points, participants were in for a chance to win a copy of Super Mario Bros. 3, which had released just one month prior to Kaya Mario Bros. Win or lose, the entrants would receive a free Mario key ring, with the promotion running from November 1988 to May 1989. An interesting and somewhat unique addition to Kaya Mario Bros. was the inclusion of advertising. These ads would appear during level transitions, advertising various Mario titles such as Mario Bros. 3, but also strangely, Japanese food company Nagatanian, who sponsored the game's production. The Satellaview, a Japanese exclusive add-on for the SNES which we brought up multiple times before on this channel, also had several Mario titles. The system would connect to the internet and could be used to download unique games or games with special conditions, altered from standard retail titles. One of these games is called Undake 30 Same Game, though it was also made available in cartridge format for a limited run in 1995. Developed by Hudson Soft, the game is effectively just a rebrand on the classic solitaire card game Monte Carlo, whereby selecting two icons of the same type next to each other will remove both icons from the screen. Considering the game's simplicity, it shouldn't be surprising that it was distributed as a downloadable title via the Satellaview. This edition was broadcast every Monday at 5.30pm, and as with many Satellaview games, it was accompanied by a radio show. This particular show starred Sagiyuma Kazuko, the voice of Bomberman, the show aired from April 1995 for about a year. In a similar situation, Wario's Woods had a curious Japanese exclusive version. While the game received a physical release, a special edition was made exclusively for distribution through the Satellaview. In 1997, Nintendo published Wario's Woods Bakusho version, a game that saw a decent share of contention. The title, which plays exactly like Wario's Woods, which released on both the NES and the SNES internationally but only on the Famicom in Japan, simply replaces various characters from the game with the comedy duo Bakusho Mondai. 
It was around this time that complaints that Nintendo was failing to deliver unique experiences with the Satellaview service were commonplace, and this mildly altered version of a pre-existing title didn't help their case. The company distributed a second version of Wario's Woods on the service called Wario's Woods Again, making very few changes from the international SNES version, though lacking a couple of game modes and dialogue in the story's game mode. Birdo was still removed and replaced by a female Satellaview avatar. The complaints surrounding the remakes and rebranding of the existing Nintendo games wouldn't stop with Wario's Woods, though this next title would be unique to their service and wouldn't be available in any other form on the SNES. Excitebike Bun Bun Mario Battle Stadium, as you can expect with its title, was an Excitebike remake, or sequel if you will, featuring a lineup of Mario characters. The game was developed by Nintendo and released in four different episodes, with episode 1 featuring Mario, Luigi and Toad, episode 2 adding Wario, episode 3 adding Peach and episode 4 adding Yoshi, though removing Luigi for some reason. Non-playable races would be different coloured Koopa Troopers. What's interesting about this title was its exclusivity with the Satellaview. The game would be a wholly new creation for the 16-bit era, and the only entry in the Excitebike series for the SNES, as it would be three more years before Excitebike 64's release. By exploring the game's data, it's also possible to find a bonus game mode which would ultimately go completely unused. The title also featured voice acting, with one of Charles Martinet's earliest appearances as Mario. Let's -a -go. After Excitebike, Mario would return to a job that he'd taken part in before, as a member of a building wrecking crew. The original wrecking crew was released in 1985 for the NES as a launch title, but the game received a 16-bit sequel for the Super Famicom called Wrecking Crew 98. First as a downloadable title with the Nintendo Power Flashable Cartridge Service in January of 1998, then as a standard cartridge released in May later that year. The game sees Mario return from a trip outside the Mushroom Kingdom, only to find that Bowser has constructed new hideouts across the kingdom. As a result, his new buildings are blocking out the sun, depriving the landscape of sunlight. In a bit to counter this, Mario sets out to demolish the new hideouts with his trusty hammer. Along his journey, he encounters former adversaries from the original Wrecking Crew, including rival Foreman Spike. The game featured a full story mode, versus mode, and a tournament mode. Its premise is simple, players break tiles to line up colours of three or more whilst avoiding various hazards such as enemies that travel down the stage. It isn't quite the same as the original Wrecking Crew, but for those that wish to play that title, it has been bundled within the game as well. This game never had an international release due to the year in which it was released. Nintendo's different international divisions ended the publication of SNES games in 1997, a year prior to Wrecking Crew 98's release. From the Satellaview to another peripheral that underperformed, the Nintendo e-reader was an attachment for the Game Boy Advance which let users swipe special cards through a scanner that interpreted the code. The add-on was mostly used for small additions to games like Super Mario Advance 4 where new levels could be added via the cards. Mario Party E was released in 2003 in both Japan and North America and is a board game bundled with not just a playboard but 64 cards for the e-reader. Effectively, this was a tabletop game which used the GBA to further extend the possible gameplay options of the board. Each player is given 5 cards and on their turn draws a card from a deck pile. The player can then play a card or discard a card. The overall goal is to place the three superstar items, Mario's hat, clothes and shoes, into the player's in-play area, and then play the superstar card. Cards give a variety of instructions with 11 minigame cards which can be played. Cards have an associated coin cost which means the player must have the correct number of coins in play to use them. The game is quite simple but if you'd like to see the game in action, YouTubers Fossil Arcade have a playthrough video in which they demonstrate the game quite succinctly. Check the link in the description below. And from a physical tabletop game to a virtual one. Yakuman DS was developed by Nintendo and their close partners Intelligent Systems, famed for their work on the likes of WarioWare, Fire Emblem and Paper Mario. The game was released in Spring 2005 exclusively in Japan and is, loosely speaking, a sequel to the original Yakuman released on the Game Boy nearly two decades earlier. The game is simply a Ricci Mahjong game with Mario and his friends shoehorned in, allowing for four players to go up against one another thanks to the DS's wireless connectivity. 
Despite being a regional exclusive, the game proved to be popular enough to earn a re-release a year later, this time taking advantage of the DS's Wi-Fi capabilities, allowing players to compete online. Did you know? Development of Super Mario Maker 2 began before the Nintendo Switch had released. It's likely that planning for the game started around the same time that the original Mario Maker's 3DS port had been completed. The focus of Super Mario Maker 2 was to build on the first game, and add highly requested features that weren't present in the original. This can even be seen with the game's internal project name, which was titled Slopes. Slope tiles were, by far, the most asked-for feature after the release of Mario Maker 1, with Nintendo even focusing on slopes for their reveal trailer. The game's producer, Takashi Tezuka, said, We knew from an early stage that we wanted to make a sequel, and that the theme would be to try and do more than what we did with the first game. For us, those new ideas took the form of creating new game styles, new course parts, and items to use in course making, and new modes for the playing side as well, such as story mode. Tezuka also mentioned that the Luigi Assist mode, which pops up after the player has died more than once in a story mode level, wasn't simply added to help inexperienced players beat the game. Tezuka stated, This is a game about making, so I thought it would be fun if there was a way to include a little bit of course making, even when you're playing a course, like this, so we included the Luigi Assist mode. In addition to this, Tezuka confessed to Game Informer that the user-created content in the Mario Maker games will likely influence Nintendo's level design in future Mario games. Mario Maker 2 added several new themes for its game styles. Developers added desert, snow, forest, and sky themes, each with a new arrangement from series composer Koji Kondo. However, these themes aren't entirely new. The Super Mario Bros. Sky theme uses part of the name entry track from Versus Super Mario Bros., which was originally released in arcades in 1986. The Sky theme also uses several notes from the Super Mario Bros. ground theme, featured in Super Smash Bros. Brawl, which was also arranged by Kondo. Part of the Super Mario World Snow style theme also alludes to Super Mario 64's Snow Mountain theme. Nintendo originally tried to implement the Super Mario 3D World theme so that it would be compatible with the other themes. After some work had been put into it, developers realized they'd need to make it a completely separate style if they wanted to stay true to the spirit of 3D World. One interesting side note is that an earlier version of the 3D World style used Mario 3 music in the background. The music may have been added purposefully as a placeholder, but this could also imply that developers used the Mario 3 level style as a base for the 3D World style. The development team also considered using Bowser's car from 3D World as a vehicle in the 3D World style, but they decided to go with the Koopa Trooper car instead. This was because of how difficult it would have been to replicate Bowser's car in the game. Mario Maker 2's story mode also has unused, or at least unseen, features. If the player modifies the game to remove the invisible walls in the story mode's hub world and drops off the edge of a platform, the screen will fade out as if the player just lost a life. The animation even resembles a bottomless pit death from Super Mario Odyssey. This may have been a precaution in case players managed to get out of bounds and softlocked the game. However, it could be a leftover from past Mario games, as the story mode hub seems to run on the same engine as past 3D Mario games. The game has more content that players can't normally see, such as metal block tiles. These kinds of tiles are used to stop players from jumping over spikes that are placed in the highest row of tiles in a level. However, they can only be seen in the Super Mario 3D World style levels, as the 3D camera goes slightly higher than the 2D styles, bringing them into view. These tiles exist in all the game's styles, but can't be seen unless the camera is hacked. Super Mario Maker 2 features many new enemies, including the Angry Sun, originally used in Super Mario Bros. 3. Interestingly, Angry Sun was planned to appear in the original Mario Maker, but went unused. 
files containing the word Sun can be found in the game's data. The names of these placeholder files suggest the Sun could have been used in the Mario 3, Mario World, and New Super Mario Bros. styles. Each game style has two files, indicating the Angry Sun would have had an alternate form like most of the other objects. Although the original Mario Maker featured extensive amiibo support, Mario Maker 2 has no support for amiibo whatsoever. This could be due to amiibo sales waning ever since their peak sales in the 2015 holiday season. Costumes in general have also been removed, along with the Mystery Mushroom, which previously transformed Mario into a random costume on contact. Mario Maker 2 also removed the Weird Mushroom, which would transform Mario into a lankier version of himself. However, Weird Mario still makes an appearance as an easter egg if a warp door is knocked several times. He can be seen in a large range of outfits. This is far from the only easter egg in the game. Story Mode Course 3 is called Hello 3D World. Not only does this reference Super Mario 3D World, but it also references a test program taught in many computer coding courses. The purpose of the Hello World program is to illustrate the syntax of computer code, and its only function is displaying the phrase Hello, comma, world, exclamation point. Interestingly, the Japanese name for this course is also Hello 3D World in English. This is a nod to the fact that Japanese programmers code in English as well. There are a few hidden references in the author names of Story Mode courses. Beyond veiled nods to Mario characters, these aliases also reference other Nintendo franchises. The names Agent 1 and Agent 2 are nods to Callie and Marie from Splatoon. Not only do the course descriptions resemble Callie and Marie's speech patterns, the names Agent 1 and Agent 2 are pseudonyms given to the duo in the original Splatoon. On top of this, the course creators, Celebrity MC and Celebrity DJ, appear to be nods to Pearl and Marina from Splatoon 2. In Splatoon 2's Octo expansion, Pearl goes by the name MC Princess in Marina's chat room. Similarly, Marina adopts the moniker DJ Hyperfresh in the Octo expansion. Super Mario Maker 2 was also promoted in a few interesting ways. To celebrate the transition from the Heisei era to the Reiwa era in Japan, Nintendo released a short trailer for Mario Maker 2. Japan generally enters a new era when it receives a new emperor, and this short trailer references these transitions using Mario Maker 2's level themes. The video starts with the Super Mario Bros. theme, as Mario 1 released during the Showa era. The video then transitions into the Super Mario World theme, which released during the Heisei era. The video finishes off by transitioning into the Super Mario 3D World style, presumably because it's the most recent theme within Mario Maker 2. On July 17, 2019, Nintendo partnered up with Southwest Airlines for a Mario Maker-themed promotion on a flight to San Diego for San Diego Comic-Con. The promotion had passengers play a custom level during the flight, the Southwest Super Sky Challenge. Passengers were told that one winner would get a Nintendo Switch and a $500 Southwest gift card. However, the two companies surprised everyone when all passengers on board were given a Switch system for free. Many features that weren't present in the original Mario Maker were added to the sequel. However, Mario Maker 2 also brought several new oversights and glitches that weren't present in the original game either. If the player sets up a scenario where they collect a power-up when going into a door, then get hit immediately upon exiting the other side, time will freeze. In this state, not only is the timer frozen, all enemy behavior and physics seem to pause. On top of this, nothing can harm or even kill the player, and the player's controller inputs have no response. The player character also can't interact with other sprites, meaning that level-ending sequences can't be triggered, and courses cannot be uploaded. There's another interesting glitch with a similar setup that also affects course endings. If the player enters a door at the same time as collecting a power-up, then overlaps a goalpost while exiting the door, they'll be able to continue moving around the level, even though the course is completed. The player will be able to control their character for about 20 seconds after touching the goal. 
Then the level will end as normal. It's also possible to break some limits within the game due to oversights. The game restricts how many objects can be placed in a level, such as pipes that have coins in them. The game eventually stops the player from putting coins in pipes, but the player can continue to copy existing pipes with coins in them, breaking the limit. However, doing this and saving the level will result in the game saying the course data is corrupt. The game will then delete the level. There's another glitch that has been described by some as the most bizarre glitch in the game. To perform this glitch, the player must first place 99 blocks on tracks, and then place a big thwomp on a track. The player must then remove the track that the thwomp is on, then press undo. The game will now operate as if the thwomp is on a track, even though it isn't. The player must then remove all the other tracks and blocks, then copy the thwomp 35 times into the same spot. Doing this creates a so-called black hole. Objects will adopt various strange properties if they overlap the thwomp. It also becomes possible to stack objects that cannot normally be stacked, such as pipes. Using this glitch can lead to some very interesting results, such as creating a giant semicircle out of fire bars. Similar to the glitches that exceed object limits, these levels are described as corrupt if the player tries to save them and they cannot be uploaded. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.